In John chapter 6, the lengthiness of the chapter, Jesus is, really has one theme or purpose in John 6. He is presenting himself as the bread of life. And he does that in demonstration of the miracles, the feeding of the multitude, the 5,000, really probably almost 10,000 by real estimates. Uh, he did that through his teaching. And one of the things that we discover in this is as Jesus is now moving forward in John's gospel, as John presents him, uh, remember again, I won't have it on the screen, but in John 20, 31, John tells us the purpose of why he's writing so that you would believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah. So everything that John is doing is driving the reader, the listener, towards belief in Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. And so everything is more intentional and serves that purpose, different, as I said, than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which follow not exactly a chronological, but follow more of that pattern. John is driving home his goal is that you would have faith and belief in Jesus Christ. And so everything, and here in chapter 6, as he presents the bread of life, one of the things that he says, I am the bread of life, one of the things that he's doing in his ministry is drawing to the surface those believers, those who would receive him as the Messiah, as the Christ. And in the process of drawing those to himself, it also reveals those who reject his message. And so we see that in John chapter 6 and the various events and things that have happened. And one of the aspects in John chapter 6 that we're presented with is looking at two groups, kind of oversimplified, two basic groups. And the two groups are essentially those who stayed with Jesus and those who departed from Jesus, those who lasted and those who did not. And we're going to see that drawn out in a little bit. And we see different examples uh, all through Scripture of people who lasted in their faith and those who abandoned their faith. And that's true today. Those who stick to the commitment that uh, they made to Christ. Uh, but sometimes we know, and perhaps even in our own life, there were times that we struggled in that commitment. So in John chapter 6, Jesus is drawing those true believers to himself, and he does this again by not only presenting the metaphor and showing them a real-life illustration of the multiplication of the bread and the fish as a miracle, but he uses that as an illustration, as a word picture, if you will, that points to himself and says, I am the true bread of life. In John chapter 6, uh, and you want to do a little in, in study within John, there are seven different I am statements. Uh, this is the first one where he says, I am the bread of life. Obviously, he's not uh, wheat and flour, and that but just as Jesus uses throughout his teaching, like in John 3 with Nicodemus about being born again, he and the woman at the well, you drink from this water, you'll never thirst. He always loves to use word pictures and metaphors that help us understand his identity. It's interesting, this reaction that we're going to see here in John 6, by way of a little bit of review, in John chapter 6, verse 32, just to go back a little bit, uh, 
we see that Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Remember, they said, Hey, Moses, he didn't just give us bread one time like you did, because they're comparing Moses to Jesus. He gave us bread for 40 years, and Jesus says, It wasn't Moses, it was my Father from heaven. Verse 33, For the bread of God... And he again, he's drawing attention to himself for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread, not Lord, but sir, they were respectful, but again, not acknowledging him for who he is. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus, by drawing this analogy metaphor to bread is, is certainly identifying himself as the one who can only bring real satisfaction to your life. If you're hungry for meaning, hungry for purpose, hungry to why do I exist, what is my purpose in life, why can I never seem to be satisfied with life, I buy this, I get this job, I do all these things, I trade this spouse for another one, and I'm never, I'm never satisfied. You laugh, but you know I'm telling the truth, Right? Because we're always trying to find and chase after that which lasts. And Jesus clearly says, I am the lasting sustenance of life. I am the bread of life. And again, uh, that's pretty obvious through our study. So talking about as that kind of a little bit as a reminder backdrop, we see in John chapter 6 those who lasted and those who didn't. Those who finished well and those who did not. My heart as pastor to most of you is that you would be a people that would finish well. That what we desire to do here on Sundays is, is just to, again, uh, provide a, a, an instill of faith to the faithful. You know, faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. That you would be a people that would have the stick-to-itiveness by God's grace, by God's mercy, uh, and that you would finish well. So if you're here and you're thinking, I'll never last. I'm struggling, Pastor. Uh, I'm never going to make it. I, I mean, I'm struggling right now. Well, then this encouraging word today is for you. Now, you may be saying, hey, I know I'll last. I think you probably need this message even more. Because sometimes it's that self-confidence uh, that sometimes can get us in trouble because we think, I'll never have any troubles. I'll never have any struggles. Listen, and this is, this is free. I know somebody very close that was a former elder in a church that I pastored. Knew the Word of God more than me. Theologically sound, all those things. Um, today... He is, says he is a professing atheist. Now, is that for a season or is that really his spiritual state? I, you know, that's only time and eternity will tell that. So I don't any longer take anything for granted with people. And so we need to not have a confidence in myself. I need to have a confidence in the grace of God that will hold me, right? The hand of God that saved me is the hand of God that keeps me. 
And uh, as, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, uh, nothing shall separate us from the love of God, but it's God who does it. So this morning, the title of the message is Developing a Faith That Will Last. I want to last. I want to make it, don't you? Uh, I want to finish this thing, right? Because I, and again, it's not by just my willpower, uh, but it's by, again, God's faithfulness in my life. So this morning, uh, we're going to look in John 6. But before we do that, let's take a moment once again to pray. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for Christ who reveals truth to us. And we pray this morning that we'll draw encouragement through the word Lord, may your Holy Spirit be our teacher today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to look with me at two of these groups. The first one are two ways that we can, what we can learn. And the first one is learning from those who left Jesus. Learning from those who left Jesus. Kind of starting with a negative. Uh, what can we learn from those who left Jesus? Verse 60 of John 6 it says that when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Now, again, I'm not trying to do a lot of review, but let me just back up a little bit to verse 57 of what Jesus said. Again, remember, he's teaching about bread. He's teaching they've, they've eaten physically. But notice how Jesus is moving it towards some truth here. Let's back up to verse 57 and see what they reacted Two, verse 57, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, Jesus says this, these are his words, so whoever feeds on me, all right, he's the bread of life, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread your fathers ate and died, that, that, you may have been impressed with that, but that was temporary bread. It was a picture of the true bread, that manna there in the wilderness he's referring to. But he says, whoever feeds on this bread, referring to himself, will live forever. All right? So they are responding and saying, this is a hard teaching. And some people reacted and said, you know, I'm not sure we can... We're, we're tracking with you, Jesus. I'm not sure we're following with you, Jesus. And something he said previously, we won't look at it, you can read it on your own. He took this analogy of feeding on me, and remember he said, he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And you're like, whoa, Jesus, hit pause. What are you talking about? I mean, is this cannibalism? Is this vampire? Remember, no, 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 no. Remember, Jesus is using metaphors. He's using pictures. And so you think about it, he's talking about the bread of life. He's going from the known to the unknown. He's going from what they know to tie it in. Just again, like Jesus with Nicodemus, you must be born again. You remember what Nicodemus, how he reacted? How can I go in my mother's womb again? I mean, he was, he was thinking in a natural sense. He wasn't thinking of the way that Jesus was using this as a spiritual truth. And if you think about it, Jesus using the metaphor of bread and eating bread and tying it to himself and speaking about food and eating is really not a hard 
to think of the spiritual connection there of the metaphor uh, that when you eat, when you feed, you're, you, you're, you, have to, you have to eat. Now, somebody might be able to force food in your mouth or do some things, but normally you feed yourself. That's personal. You have to do it. You have to take the food in. You have to chew it. You have to digest it. And the same with Christ. Nobody can do that for you. You have to partake of that. Um, bread is a picture of the source of life without bread. Uh, we can't survive without that nutrients. We can't survive. And so there's the physical and spiritual truth there. And food, when we eat it, it becomes a part of us. It becomes a part of our diet. It becomes a part of our physical being, rather. Uh, and, you know, in the natural, we can tell a person's way they are living, oftentimes their aches and pains many times has an effect on what they're eating, their diet. So in a sense, if we're not partaking of the bread of life, it'll show up in the way that we live. So the analogy isn't really hard, but they, they couldn't understand that. And they kind of reacted against that and said, wow, Jesus, this is really, really hard. This is difficult. Now, I grant you, even for me, there are many things in Scripture that are, that are difficult, that are hard to understand. There's a lot of doctrines that, that are difficult. But here's the deal. Either, either one or two things are happening. Either something is wrong with the biblical teaching or the teaching of Jesus, or maybe something's wrong with me that I'm not quite understanding and learning and applying the way the truth should be, should be uh, understood. So when we come to things, there's nothing wrong with saying, wow, that's difficult. But remember, the difficulty of understanding is more likely with me. And I need to, I need to, I need to grow. I need to learn. I need to be like those Bereans in Acts chapter 17 where they listened to Paul and they checked him out with the Scripture, right? That's the way we need to, to be when it comes to that. Listen, Jesus is not teaching us and providing his word and commandments to just, make, to just play games with us, uh, to, to set up these obstacles that somehow he knows that are going to be burdensome. Lord, the, the word of the Lord is not burdensome. It's life, Jesus says. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 11? He said, come to me and I'll give you rest. Come to me and I'll give you rest and all your hard work that, that's like a heavy yoke, wear my yoke, it fits perfectly around you. Um, and when you, he said, I am gentle and humble and you'll find rest for your souls. Uh, that's Jesus. So to come in conformity and connection with Jesus is to learn from him. He says, look, I, my, my yoke, which is like a yoke they put around uh, uh, a horse or a team of horses to guide them and steer them. He said, it's not burdensome and heavy. He said, when you're walking in my word, there is a rest and there's a gentleness of Christ. Look, the truth is always hard. And this is maybe a little uh, place that you're at. And maybe these people here where they were saying it was hard. The truth is always hard for those who think that Jesus will settle for less than he demands. Sometimes folks feel like they can negotiate and, 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 
and, and say, Jesus, well, you know what, you know, maybe this is like a buffet line. You know, I don't really like that, um, you know, turning the other cheek thing. I, you know, I don't like this. I don't like that. But I like this. I like your, your blessings. I like your peace. I like all that. But I'm not sure I like all the other stuff. Can, is there like, you know, a package that's like, I remember, when, you know, when I was little and looking through that Sears catalog at Christmas, I was looking for the bicycle or the stereo or whatever, Remember, they'd always have good, better, and best. The better was the one I always tried to circle because I figured my dad would be more prone to do the middle one, right? When it's expensive. And we're like, God, Jesus, is there, a, is there a bronze package and is there a silver package? No, there's only one gold package uh, that Jesus provides. But some people uh, feel like that they it's hard because they really don't like the the commandments that Jesus provides. And then you have some people on the other extreme, hard to believe, but they're certainly there and they're certainly represented throughout the Gospels. The Pharisees, the truth of Jesus is hard for them because they feel like Jesus should demand more. Ask more that Jesus, you're being too lenient. This freedom business, you know, that's dangerous. We can't allow people to be free. We can't, you know, we've got to provide the law. We've got to provide the the, you know, the strictness, you know, if they don't know how to keep the Sabbath, we need to give them 50 ways to keep the Sabbath. If they don't know how to do this, we need to provide all those things. They feel like Jesus is too, that his demands aren't, aren't uh, strict enough. So whatever the reason is, people find the teaching of Jesus oftentimes difficult. They said in verse 60, this is difficult. This is a hard teaching. The word there, difficult, maybe translated hard in your different uh, translation, the word in the original uh, Greek doesn't, does not mean hard to understand. It means hard to accept. It's not that it was hard to understand. I mean, think about it. Jesus is kind of like the way, you know, maybe the kids in the back are being taught. What do they do when they're, you're teaching them concepts about faith? You... You know, show them illustrations, and we have a love for flannel graphs here. Remember flannel graphs, adults, right? And our overly technological, kid, you know, way of kids doing. Actually, some of those old school ways are actually kind of popular. But you'd you'd show pictures, you show examples, so you could you could when you learn to read, what do you do? You you know, you start out with pictures and small words. See, spot, run, and there's a dog, and he's running, chasing a ball. Jesus, what is he doing? He's breaking it down in the most simple way. He's fed them multiplied bread. That bread that you eat, that's kind of like me. I'm the bread. You get it? I mean, it didn't, it didn't. He's not preaching over their heads. So the understanding wasn't the problem. It was the accepting. And we see that in this group. And you see several people in John chapter 6. Like I said, John chapter 6 is just full, full of stuff. And it's easy to get lost in the, the weeds there without keeping the big picture in mind. Look at the different people in there. You got, a, you got the crowd. You got the Jewish leaders. Then you have this group called the disciples. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. And that's not the 12 because the 12 are differentiated. They're separated from this group called the disciples. And I'll talk about that in a minute. So you have this disciples then you have the 12, and then it kind of finishes out with the one. And that's Peter. And that's Peter's 
confession of faith that we'll look about. Notice how it narrows from the crowd down to the Jewish leaders, the leaders who were supposed to know the word of the Lord, to this, these fans, really they're the disciples, and we'll see that in a minute, to the twelve, and then to the one. You see, the crowd was seeking, then they're murmuring, then they're striving, arguing with Jesus about things they don't understand, then we see them departing, this is too hard, we're leaving, but then it ends with one confession by Peter and says, we know you're the Christ. I wonder where you're at right now. What group would you kind of put yourself into right now? Are you the seeking crowd, the murmuring crowd, the complaining, the striving? Maybe you're ready to abandon, go AWOL on the Lord. Maybe you have departed and you're here today. Not sure even why you're here, but you're here. But in your heart, you've, you've walked away. But God wants to drive us towards confession, bringing us to the place where we confess the Lord Jesus Christ, that we give Him our heart, we give Him our life. You know, you can't be neutral about Jesus. I'll say that again. You can't be neutral about Jesus. C.S. Lewis says you can love Jesus or you can hate Jesus, but you cannot do with Jesus. One thing you cannot do with Jesus is ignore Him. There's no middle ground. Jesus said what? If you're not for me, you've made your choice. <laughs> if you're not for me, you're against me. These disciples, and we're going to break that down a little bit about this disciples, they were murmuring. Verse 61, John 6, 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? In your listeners, God, you got a place to write this down. There's a huge difference between questioning the truth and grumbling about the truth. There's a huge difference between questioning, about, questioning the truth and grumbling about the truth. Here's the deal. When there's, there's nothing wrong with questioning. I mean, the disciples did that, didn't they? Jesus, uh, you know, can you explain this? Help us to understand this. But that's different than grumbling, complaining. We, we don't like that. We want you to change that. There's a difference between getting clarity and understanding versus though they were saying, you know what, we're, we're really not... We've never heard that before. We're not sure we're going to buy in to that. They weren't seeking. They were grumbling. If you think back in one of the big illustrations in Scripture is the Israelites in that wilderness desert for 40 years. And what is one pattern, if you know your Old Testament history a little bit, what is the one pattern that sticks out about that group? They were always griping and complaining about something, right? They didn't have anything to eat. God gave them bread. Well, we don't, we don't have any meat. And God supernaturally provided that. And then they got tired of that. Then they said, we don't have any water. And God supernaturally provided that. They were always griping and complaining, not only to Moses, but to God. And one of the reasons that God kept that generation from entering into the promised land of Canaan 
was because of their grumbling and complaining. Because ultimately, what is it saying? Is that, God, I don't trust you to meet my needs. God, I don't like the way that you're guiding and navigating my life. And as a judgment, he kept them out of the promised land. Listen, grumbling and complaining will always keep you from God's promises in your life. And Jesus said, verse 61, do you take offense at this? Does this bother you? Are you offended? It's interesting, the word offend, one of the origins of the word, the great word picture here, the word offend comes from the word for a crooked stick that you would take and place in a trap so that when an animal hit it, the stick would drop and the trap would fall and they'd be captured. Some people have a hair trigger of offense. You know anybody like that? Maybe you're like that. I mean, and sometimes those wires, you're around people, you don't see them till it's like one of those bombs out in the, you know, in the Afghanistan or so. You don't know it till you tripped over it. And they explode. You tripped over an, one of their offense wires. You see, we all have traps that, are, uh, that trap us from obeying and following and keeping us from sticking to and lasting with Jesus. Think of a couple examples with me. Remember the rich young man that came to Jesus? Wealthy. Doesn't say this, but I assume he looked good. He had fine clothes. I mean, he, you know, he had it all. And Jesus said, "Have you obeyed the commandments?" What did he say? I've obeyed every one of them since I was a kid. But Jesus, the Master that knows our heart, he knew the stick. He knew the trap of that man's life. And he said, go and sell everything you have. Now, that is not a statement that Jesus wants us all to go sell everything, you know, we have. But in that man's life, his money was his trap. His money was what would trap him and keep him from knowing Jesus. And the Bible says that he walked away because the Bible says he walked away because he had many riches. That was his trap. That was... That offended him, and he couldn't follow with Jesus. On the other side, a few, several weeks back, we looked at the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus walks up to her and says, you want to believe in me? Then go call your husband. He knew, he knew that the way that she had run and managed her relationships was her trap. But she, she followed after Christ. He touched the deepest need. And some people don't want that. That's why some people would rather go to a church that kind of tells us every day is a Friday instead of telling the truth. I'm not saying they've got to be mean and harsh and, you know, you know, it's like medicine. It doesn't do any good unless it tastes bad. You know, like church, there's some people that think... If you go to church and leave with a smile, the pastor must have compromised somewhere. You know, I want to I leave and I want to feel, 
beaten up and bruised and really let me I don't know about you, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's the way to, the Bible teaches about growing a church. No, Jesus was a truth teller. And Jesus, because he knows each one of us, Jesus knows how to customize the truth that is like that heat-seeking missile that can go right and knock that cigar right out of Osama bin Laden's... I don't even know if he smoked a cigar. But anyway, I mean, those heat-seeking missiles can go down and hit within inches of the target. You see, because Jesus knows us. He made us. He designed us. And He knows that which can hinder us and keep us from lasting in our walk with Him. In one case of that woman at the well, she avoided the trap. In the other case, the rich young ruler, he walked away empty. You see, because the words that Jesus speaks in verse 63, Jesus said, talking about these teachings back in John 6, He said it is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. He says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by my Father. That's a great verse, which emphasizes the fact that we cannot love, we don't love God because we just decided one day we're going to follow after God. We love God because God first loved us. God always takes the first initiative in drawing us to himself. And then he says in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see, the disciples, the way it's used there, it's not being used in the term of the twelve, because as you look, it refers to the twelve, but the disciples. It's using the term disciple in this chapter, and if you find something that's hard to uh, interpret in the Bible, always know that the context, context is what goes before and after, the context defines the meaning of, of, of that word or that term or what's being done there. So the disciples that left, that, are, that could be more of those that's used in a very general sense of those who were just, they were part of the crowd and they've been kind of following Jesus from place to place because they've gotten a free lunch and they've been fascinated to watch him. We would call them more of being fans than followers. You with me? Fans. They got the t-shirt. They got the stickers. They got the glow sticks. You right? They got all the junk, right? And they're big fans, except when Jesus begins to define what it means to be a follower. They're just, you see, disciple isn't a unique, that's really Every rabbi had disciples. It just means followers. That's all that John's trying to do here is just show you that there were a lot of people that were following Jesus. Curiosity seekers. Fans, if you will. But when Jesus began to narrow it down, and guess what? Jesus, don't miss this. 
Jesus himself is the one that is narrowing the crowd down. You see, oftentimes the way churches in America, we do the complete opposite. We swing the door wide open that it, you know, we, we, just, we just kind of put the minimalist understanding about Christ on the table. Jesus seems to go against that whole thing, doesn't he? And I'm, oftentimes, it doesn't necessarily say this, but you always get this feeling, disciples are always kind of scratching their heads. Because remember what we said a few weeks back, they put their entire, I'm talking about the 12 now, They've given up their businesses. They've temporarily walked away maybe from some of their obligations. But they have this misunderstanding of the Messiah, of one who's going to be the political leader, who's not going to be crucified. Remember, Peter had a hard time with that. He didn't understand that. Jesus rebuked him. They wanted a Messiah that was going to come back and return Israel to its glory of David and Everything that Jesus is doing is pushing back at the very opposite of that. Why did these people, before we move on to the second observation, what happened to these people that didn't last? In your handout there, you can follow a few things on there. One is they were never able to move beyond curiosity to commitment to Christ. Some people in church always dabbling, drop in once every three months, curious. They never can quite, you know, move forward. Secondly, they never look past the temporary to see the eternal. They were happy as long as they were getting all the free stuff. Free bread, free food. But when Jesus talked about the demands of discipleship, what was eternal, not the temporary. He used the temporary to point us to the eternal. And thirdly, and don't miss this, the needs that drew them, the needs that drew them to Jesus eventually kept them from Jesus. You see, they had the need of food, provision, and they rushed. They rushed to Jesus. Jesus, get me out of my jam. We've all done that. All of a sudden, we're going to read our Bible. We're going to pray. We're going to show up at church every time the door opens. And by God's grace, guess what? You get out of your jam. And then what happens? Just back to the same old, same old. Jesus might get you out of your jam. He might get you into a deeper jam. If that's his purpose. To draw you. To be like him. I don't know about you, but I found that sometimes he puts me in jams. Hello? Hello? Yeah. And he lets me stay in the jam for a while. You see, the thing that drew them to Jesus is what kept them from Jesus. Because see where their heart was. They were there when all the free stuff was happening. But once the free stuff dropped off and he began to point to the real demands of discipleship, they left. 
I think again, I think of often churches that have all the gimmicks, all the stuff. We're going to give away an iPad. That's the reason Easter, we really don't do a lot of stuff. You know, some churches have carnivals and all this stuff. And then they come back next week and they're like, hey, where's the bagels and cappuccino? You see, the way you win them will be the way you keep them. Notice, secondly, developing a faith that will last means learning from those who left Jesus, but also means learning from those who stayed with Jesus. Verse 67, notice again, Jesus says, verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, you see the difference between the crowd, the disciples, the fans, to the twelve now, this group of fans said, this is too hard, can't do this, and it says they left. So Jesus turned to the twelve and said, do you, you want to go with them? You want to go away with them? You know, the Lord will ask that question to all of us at times of testing, won't he? When we're going through a, a hardship or we've prayed about something, we become convinced that this is the way that the Lord is going to answer this prayer and He doesn't quite do it that way. We'll be asked the question, do you want to leave as well? Is this, is this what it takes? You're going to leave? Maybe somebody we respected personally or maybe somebody, a well-known person in the faith, fall on their face in, in hypocrisy and sin. And the Lord will say, you're rattled? You should be. But do you want to leave? You want to leave? I love Peter. You know, Peter, <laughs> he's so helpful to us positively and also negatively, isn't he? I mean, Peter is a great example of somebody that persevered. I mean, Peter lasted through the bitterness and disappointment on the human level of the cross. He lasted through the fact that he denied Christ three times. He had an incredible failure in his faith. I think we all can identify and relate to that. But he lasted. In spite of all that, he lasted. He lasted through the fact that even in, after the resurrection in the early church, you may not realize this, but he lasted through the fact that he, being the leader of the first church at the beginning, but then he was replaced by James, the half-brother of Jesus, to be the leader of that local church in Jerusalem. He was, now again, he had other missionary endeavors, but he was sort of demoted there for a while. He lasted through that. He lasted through the struggles and mistakes when he was with Paul about trying to get this whole Jewish-Gentile thing figured out. But he lasted. Even when Paul rebuked him to his face and condemned him. He didn't abandon. He received it. And I even noted this. Those are all negative kind of things. But he even lasted through the success of preaching and seeing over 3,000 people saved and baptized there in Acts chapter 2. Do you realize that oftentimes successes... 
destroy more people than failures? Why did Peter's faith last? Look at verse 68. Jesus said, do you want to go as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Remember what's going on in John chapter 6. The crowd, religious leaders... The quote-unquote disciples, fans, the twelve, and down to one. I'm not saying he's the only, but he said we, we. I want you to see three things here in Peter's statement. He says, where else? Where else can we go? Now, I know I'm reading a little bit in the white space, but when he says like where else, it's almost like, you know, Jesus, we, we've thought about this thing. Me and the guys, we, we've talked about this thing. And, you know, I mean, you know, sometimes you say things that we're not always with you. We don't understand. Sometimes you embarrass us. Remember that temple thing and you're overturning tables and chairs? I mean, you know, we have to live with these people. I mean, we, didn't, we, we couldn't figure that out. I mean, you have this crowd here, Jesus. I mean, what a great time to announce the kingdom. And you drive them away. Remember that rich guy? At least we could have stayed in a Motel 6 instead of sleeping outside. He would have had some money. He could have financed this operation. So we've kind of compared the alternatives, but yet we still say, you know what? You're the one. If you want to last, sometimes you need to maybe reflect on what's the alternative? Where would you be without Christ? I know two of you will know, and I love that old Harvest song. Where would I be if Jesus hadn't saved me? Where would I be? Notice, secondly... And by the way, the devil will always present the alternatives better than the truth. The devil has a gift. He does. He can make rotten fruit look sweet. He can make rotten fruit. He can make that which will destroy your life look like, you know, this is a really good thing. Satan can do one thing that God can't, and that is Satan can lie. God will never lie to you. So Peter said, where else? Where else? And then secondly, he says, what else? He says, you, you have the words of eternal life. Now, I find that interesting because you would think that Peter might would say, you know what? The clincher was that water to wine thing you did. That's... That was the that that sold me. Or the bread, the multiplication of bread and fish to feed maybe ten thousand plus people. 
He didn't say any of those dramatic, spectacular demonstrations of the power of Christ. What did he say? He said, it was your words. It was your words. The principle, if you want to last, you've got to listen to the words of Jesus regularly. You've got to partake. Go back to that point number there with the principle. If you want to last, you've got to take in the words of Christ. If you're just here and this this is and 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 you're you're a dabbler, you're a taste tester, but you're not partaking of the bread. Jesus again used that analogy. You've got to feed on me. You've got to partake of me. In John 8 31, Jesus said to these Jews that were following him that believed, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him in, the, in John 8, he said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. In my word, you are my disciples. You remember Jesus in John 15? What did he say? He said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, neither can you, unless you abide in me. He's talking about people that last, that stay, that you've got to abide. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do Where else are we going to go, Jesus? You've got the words of eternal life. And then, then Peter says, who else? Who else? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have, what? Believed. And have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. If you want to last, if you want a faith that lasts, confess your trust, your faith in Jesus openly. Openly. Openness. You see, the only time that Simon Peter was in danger of not lasting on a human level, we know that of course, remember Jesus said, you know, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. It's only the keeping power of the sovereignty of God. But on a human level, we saw him waver where? When he denied Jesus in the courtyard, that, with the, in that high priest courtyard when Jesus was under arrest. And from that day, and in fact, it, even that denial, Jesus had to three times... After the resurrection, remember Jesus kind of had a little one-on-one -on -one restoration time with Peter? And from that time on, we see just the opposite. The same man who is intimidated by a, a young girl in the high priest's courtyard denying Jesus three times, we see him in Acts chapter 2 standing without, without any fear preaching and proclaiming Jesus openly. You see, if you want to last in your faith, You need to be a person that's willing to confess him. Jesus said, you deny me before man. What? I will deny you before my father. You 
Now, that would have been a really good place to end, wouldn't it? In this wrapping the chapter up. If I was a Hollywood producer, I would, you know, the words that Jesus said, you are the Holy One of God. And then I would just fade out, bring in some music, you know. Little Celine Dion singing a God. No, I'm not Celine Dion. I mean, I mean, bring in a little Michael W. Smith. I mean, that'd be a little better. You know, and and and, and you know we're gonna fade out, and all of a sudden it just goes out, and what a great ending. But Jesus didn't end the chapter there, did he? Verse 70. Jesus has something different in mind. Verse 70. Jesus answered them. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now John added 71 as an editorial note, so the reader, because this by the time John's writing this, it's after the resurrection, after these events took place. So John's putting verse 71 in there so that readers would know who he's talking about. Verse 71 Jesus spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, didn't Peter say, we, we believe, we have come? I mean, he used the word we, and Jesus is like, time out. No, 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 it's not we. It's not we. I know one of you have the heart of a devil. Even though... You're identified as one of my twelve. Jesus closes with a sobering reminder for all of us of what does Judas's betrayal of Jesus remind us, tell us. It reminds us of the fact that you can have fellowship with the disciples of Jesus and still not last. Judas hung out with the twelve. He hung out with Jesus. But he didn't last. You can hang out with church folks. Do church stuff. But if you don't have a relationship with Christ. You're not going to last. Secondly you can be close to the activities and words of Jesus. And still not last. You can hear. You can fill out little spots in that blue form. You can have a nice Bible that you mark in. You can, you can do all that stuff. But if your heart's not right, you're not going to last. And then Judas's betrayal reminds us that you can participate, witness in the miracles and the work of Jesus and all these things. You can see it all and still not last in the end. Wasn't that Judas? In fact, Judas, think about it. Some of you may not realize this, but what was Judas's um, job title among the twelve? What did he do? He was the treasurer. He kept the money. And later John would say he was stealing. But... You usually do not let somebody be the treasurer 
of your business organization if you suspect they're a crook, right? What does that tell you about the persona of Judas with the other 11? He was trustworthy. He was a good guy. But Jesus, who didn't identify him here, John did that later. What is the one thing, if I could say it that way, what's the one thing, one thing that can guarantee a faith that will last? Stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. Abide in Him. Abide in Christ. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 7. He said, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. He lasted. I was thinking about a story I read several years back. Kept it in my little files. You know, the Christian life oftentimes is compared to a, a race. Again, using pictures, metaphors, a fight. I think Paul would have probably enjoyed boxing if he would have, you know, it seems like he was a fan of, you know. He was a sports guy, guys and gals. I want to get in trouble here. But they use pictures, metaphors to finish. Read this story, happened some years back. That prior to the 1968 Olympics, 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, John Stephen Akari from Tanzania was just another marathon runner representing his country in the Olympics. He was an Olympic caliber runner. He had won marathons in Africa running with times under two and a half hours in some lengthy distance. So he easily qualified for the Olympics. But in Mexico City, Akari encountered an obstacle he had never faced before in his life. The altitude. The altitude, unlike where he lived in Tanzania, caused his legs to cramp severely, but he kept running. Then about halfway through the race, he tangled with some other runners and fell and in the process of falling, he dislocated his knee, scraped up his leg, hurt his shoulder as he fell, but he didn't stop. And with terrible injuries and cramped muscles slowing him down, he labored on slowly to finish the race. He was one of 75 people who started the race and the last of 57 to finish it. When he entered the arena for the final lap, only a couple of thousand people were even left in the stands. Everybody had gone home. He finished dead last more than an hour behind the front runner. To those that were there, a cheer went up for his brave, this brave runner as he circled the now track that lights were being turned off. And then although it seemed a Kari had lost the race, everyone who witnessed him finishing knew he was a winner. And in an interview, later on, a reporter asked him, asked Akari this question, 
Why didn't you quit when you were hurt and bruised? Bloody, discouraged, why didn't you just quit? Nobody, nobody would have blamed you. Why didn't you just quit? I love his answer. He said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. Jesus has not saved you, redeemed you, sent his son to, gave his life to die for you. For you to not stay and finish. 